This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Doppelganger 1 to 1. Knights Black Agents in Asia. Multiverses in the Zeitgeist. And Prince Eugene of Savoy. Beginning to look a lot like weirdness. Yes, weirdness in July. Weirdness seems to start earlier every year. Especially on Kickstarter, where the weird little elf game from Atlas has everyone in the weirdness spirit. Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. In weird little elf players take turns being Santa who poses a question for the others to answer. The other players are elves, although one is secretly an imp who follows a special rule that could give it away. The first player to accuse the imp correctly three times wins. Weird little elf comes in a cute palm-sized box that looks like a gift wrap present. Perfect as a stocking stuffer. Get your holiday shopping done early. And efficiently. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends, you know they don't already own it, and keep one for yourself. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect, not boring activity for your next holiday gathering. Playable with practically any group, any size, any age. A light social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes. Weird Little Elf is on Kickstarter from July 12th until August 11th. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of die, the thump of miniature, the crunch of Dorito, and the benevolent gaze of only one disc of Peter Frampton coming alive <laughs> welcome us into the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, Eric Jeppesen, beloved Patreon backer, leads us off on an all-request episode by axing, I'm interested in running a one-to-one -one investigation game, thus explaining the setup, in which, however, the player is the monster, and not in the regular sense, I'm assuming that the players are always the real monsters, but specifically a doppelganger. Could you give me some advice on what beats to hit and pitfalls to avoid in an already intense format of one-to-one -one play? Robin, you are the king of one-to-one, -one, the godfather, if you will. Yes. Why don't you carry this entire segment? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll get to pop in and ask. Eric has a a list of other questions to sort of home in on this a bit right. more. So you can pop in with Eric's uh, follow-ups as, as we go along. So Gumshoe 1 to 1, of course, is the uh, game for uh, one GM and one player. It's focused on investigative play. And the idea of having a monster investigator is a super cool one. We've seen, you know, different variations of that over the years uh, in media, like Forever Night, for example. But I don't think we've seen a doppelganger detective show. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, Eric, be sure to go and pitch that. Mm -hmm. And so the main thing about one-to-one -one is just that, uh, you know, as he points out, that it's uh, very intense. And so the degree to which I think that you go into the angst side of being a monster versus the cool rampagey side of being a monster. I, th I think that 
if you were to pitch this show, that definitely there would be an identity crisis on the part of the doppelganger. Mm -hmm. It would have a hint of existential mystery about it. Why does a doppelganger solve mysteries? Well, presumably to ultimately seek out the answer to its own identity, yeah. right? That the doppelganger doesn't know who it really is and has been looking for years. And if I guess if you're having a series of linked adventures, it's just, well, it turns out this is what I'm good at. I'm good at finding stuff out because I can pose as other people and that's useful. Mm -hmm. So it's a really strong idea. And I guess you want to decide how much the player, uh, and if you're designing it specifically for a particular player, how much they are going to want to delve into the identity crisis or the, you know, monstrousness of it. Because of course, you know, even if you're not killing the person and absorbing their identity as a, a classic doppelganger uh, would, uh, you're still, stealing something from them you're uh, in this case you're sort of accessing their personalities without being asked to do so so that is sort of inherently squicky and so i think that you have to deal with that in some sense and uh, that it will involve some sort of reckoning as to you know either the first one shot or the final one in the series i have to uh, explain you know who you are and uh, there has, has to be a reckoning for what you've done as a monster as we've discussed before in stories where the, the monster is the uh, lead character. Yep. Eric suggests that he wants the monster, the player, to feel like an outsider absorbing the tang of humanity as they consume, asking how monstrous is too much. You've touched on that in terms of the tone of play, and are we enforcing any sort of uh, psychic damage on uh, the doppelganger as they absorb other people's psyches? Does that trigger their own existential questioning? Is there something else? But also the notion that perhaps they can only act fully human. They can only access uh, interpersonal abilities or even regular type abilities by eating other people's personalities. That the real fear for them is that there's nothing there, that they are an empty void uh, at their core. And without eating other people's brains or personalities, they don't actually exist. What do you think of that, Robin? Right. So there's two ways to go. And are you a doppelganger who's literally destroying the people whose identities you're taking, in which case you're super monstrous. And uh, I think you have to kind of be on board for it. And you get destroyed at the end. You find out who you are and that destroys you. Mm -hmm. Or you could go for the slightly less horrific, but still nasty thing of you're just sort of absorbing people that, that you're a photocopier of personality mm -hmm. right? and you're impersonating them, but you're not necessarily utterly destroying them. And I think that the first option is too monstrous mm -hmm. because ultimately, you know, you only have to kill one innocent or quasi innocent person in the course of doing your investigation, you know, by eating their personality or whatever it is before the focus shifts to, well, the real antagonist in this story is you yeah <laughs> so the mystery is how does someone else come and kill you you're talking to the guy who designed both knight's black agents and vampire the masquerade fifth edition so i i get where you're coming from robin but i assume that given that you know playing monsters is now an old and glorious uh trope there are going to be some people who are like i can take it because it helps feed the drama of my existential crisis right right that without actually destroying other people the stakes don't seem as high, for example, that that sort of thought. So I, I feel like it could go either way. Right. Eric continues to suggest that the mind reading also replicates the sources 
from one-to-one play. So perhaps you might talk about sources a little bit and also answer the question. Mind reading, I think, as we've discussed in a previous segment, is always a fun ruiner because you solve the mystery. It's like, oh, I ate the mind of the killer. Now I know how he did it. Problem solved. Yes, and if you've if you've ever watched a one of the several different shows uh, with that premise of just a, a psychic detective, it's always, well, they don't get the whole vision until the beginning of the, the fourth act, mm-hmm. and that's super lame. So in one-to-one, uh, the idea behind sources is there are other characters that you go to uh, who aren't witnesses in the case per se, but are your uh, people who you always draw on for information about a case. So your film noir detective is not a scientist, so uh, he has a scientist at uh, UCLA yeah, who he goes to right talk now. to when he has a sciencey question. And this avoids having every detective be Sherlock Holmes who knows everything. So that explains that bit of it. The other purpose of this is to have scenes that are easier and are somewhat relaxing for the GM and especially the player, where they know they're not going to have to wring information out of somebody, but instead they're going to have a little comforting exchange with someone who's a friend of longstanding. Yes, but in this case, they're nibbling away at their uh, brain. <laughs> yeah, so less comforting. <laughs> yeah, so if you're going for full-on brain nibbling, understand that you are taking the thing that is supposed to make a one-to-one somewhat easier emotionally by relaxing the tension and instead you're using it to ratchet up the tension with guilt and horror so is the player even going to want to do that and do you even actually if if you're not having the emotionally relaxing part you may consider dropping sources completely and just go you know everything because you've absorbed enough memories from enough different people over the years that you already know science. Mm -hmm. So you could just, a doppelganger could be Sherlock Holmes. He could have every skill. And if that's the only reason to do it, I would skip the scenes with the sources. On the other hand, I think it could be very interesting to say that your doppelganger uh, retains the memories of people that it impersonated long enough that those people sort of live in your head and you can kind of go visit them in a theater of the mind, in a mind palace, Mm -hmm. and have an interaction with them. And there'd still be an element of darkness or guilt. But if you want to do a sunnier version of this, you could even have it be, well, sometimes your job as a doppelganger is like to be a target for the, you know, the human target from DC. Mm -hmm. You could be a variant on that, where sometimes you impersonate your client with your client's permission so that you can go and get into trouble as them and not be killed as they uh, would be killed. And so you could have a version of this where you do get to go visit people who you used to be and you're not really talking to them. You're talking to your memories of them and who they used to be. But maybe there's something sort of wistful about that too, that you, you know, you wish you could be the scientist again because he had this happy family that you got to be part of and it could still be, reflect the themes of uh, identity and not knowing who you are and wanting to be somebody else without being a complete downer with, with having someone who can be friendly with you for a little while. So I would not discard the idea that you sometimes have friendly interactions from one-to-one because it is so tense because you're on stage. Right. And it's so important to be able to do a little relaxing. Although of course, if you were the human target type doppelganger and you ate the brain or uh, impersonated, copied, let's say the brain of a, you know, CEO or a big politician, obviously they had secrets they didn't want you to eat or to copy. And so even the friendliest version of this, they might not 
have it because they had, you know, some kind of mental block or they, or you only were allowed to copy a bit of their memory. There's some, you know, CIA gobbledygook that uh, lets them, you know, only share enough of their memories to be impersonated while you're walking out and taking the sniper bullet, but not enough to know, oh, that's what the CIA was up to. Uh, And so at some point, you know, one of those personalities could be conspiring against you in a way because they're unknowingly hiding the truth or in a different world, uh, maybe they're knowingly hiding the truth. And um, you're just the more you burrow down into those memories, the more they start showing up as like, that's what was going on. That's why the CIA kept that giant blue tank of fluid that was, you know, looted from the Nazi lab. And oh, my God, I came out of the giant tank of blue fluid. I was a CIA wet project, literally, because I was in blue fluid. Yeah, that would definitely be a cool thing to do if part of your premise is that the sources are part of the current case that you're Mm -hmm. investigating. Yeah. The other way to justify that is just simply that when you stop impersonating someone, you lose access to all of their full deep secrets. You Mm -hmm. just sort of retain an element of their personality and also their baseline background information. So you no longer know the uh, security code to somebody's, you know, deepest files, you you don't know their passwords anymore, but you still have access to their familiarity with computers. Right. And therefore you can solve the computer program problem in your current case. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, I mean, obviously the thematic richness of, of just this concept can go all kind of different ways. So, you know, even if you're not playing one-to-one, it can be a pretty interesting, you know, part of a monster team or part of a monster of the week, you know, this would be a really interesting sort of a take on the hacker character in a modern day monster game. But as with all good modern day monster games, uh, you need hunters. You need people who are hunting down the doppelganger is heat asks Eric from Knights black agents, the best way to run the hunters. What are some considerations of running hunters in one-to-one play, Robin? Well, I would actually just use the uh, sort of existing structure of one-to-one in that if you fail certain challenges, bad things happen. So that brings your hunters toward you. It has antagonist reactions the way that gumshoe standard adventures do. And so that you can have more control over when the hunters show up because with a single player and the tighter structure of a one-to-one scenario, I think you as GM want to maintain a higher control over when it is that the the hunters show up because of course they do, but you want that to be either because someone has taken time to get rid of a problem card or failed a challenge and that it, it comes in when you want it to come in because otherwise the tighter structure of the scenario, you don't want a scenario being blown up by the a role that causes the uh, hunters to show up sort of at a random time in, in the middle of an already interesting thing. You want them to right. have them in pocket to come through the door with a with a gun or a doppelganger detector. Right. And that implies you've built it into the scenario. And at the very least, you've got a number of places where you can do a yes, no logic gate. Does this scenario get better and tighter with hunters or are we already you know, at sort of peak excitement and we don't need hunters. We can just leave an indication that the hunters are here, but they don't have to bust in and uh, shoot the place up yet. Right. And that can be a limiter on the sort of mystery ruining part of mind reading, right? That you start to absorb somebody's memories and then you see that, oh no, my hunter detection scent is going off. So I can mm-hmm. only get this little bit of information and then I have to run. Yeah, right? the, you hear the, the first memory I observe is that they, you know, hit the um, uh, hunter summoning alarm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so you can use that as a, 
it could be even that, you know, the hunters are going around, you know, they have in their van a doppelganger uh, psychic de- detection ray. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, the longer you spend absorbing time, the, the more likely they are to show up. And so that gets you, I think, back into the heat idea in a way that is more intrinsic to one-to-one and more intrinsic to a doppelganger story. Well, as long as we're back at that place of intrinsic doppelgangerness that we so often dream of achieving, I feel like it's time to congratulate Eric Jeppesen on a superb high concept and congratulate Robin on a superb uh, one-to-one design and congratulate me for getting us out of this hut and into a beloved commercial. Oh, job well done, Ken. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once more to undergo a retinal scan and a background check and for those of you with the necessary clearance, to enter the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, esteemed patron Eric R. says, how would you run Knights Black Agents in Asia instead of Europe? And Ken, I know you've uh, given this some thought already, so I think this is a segment where I stand back and feed you questions. (laughs) So Eric knows the cities in Asia better than does in Europe, but he wants to know in particular, how would the uh, espionage agencies be different? And uh, we'll get to the second part of the question, but uh, I guess the big dog security-wise in Asia, China, of course. Yeah, um, and that's the difference. I mean, Europe, the big dog is America in Europe, and it's far away, or the big dog is Russia, and it's sort of, you know, it, it's no longer the, the, the globe-bestriding terror that the KGB and the GRU used to be. So you've got two big dogs, but for one reason or another, they're remote. They're not on the scene at the moment. That is not at all the case in Asia. China is absolutely dominant in the intelligence space. I mean, they're getting that way all over the world, but they absolutely are in Asia. So the Chinese Ministry of State Security is going to be playing a much bigger role in your game. You could very easily craft a nice black agents game that did not particularly involve the FSB 
and maybe even one that did not particularly involve the CIA. Uh, for example, Dracula dossier takes place basically entirely within MI6, and it's up to you how many more intelligence agencies to draw in. In an Asian campaign, unless it is literally happening, you know, in Mumbai, the, the chances of the Chinese being a major player are almost 100%. So China's MSS is absolutely the dominant player, and that's who everyone is going to be reacting to. Uh, NPCs, your player character background, there's going to have to have been, you know, what does MSS think of you? How thick is their dossier on you? Because they have one. Don't get them wrong. It's just, you know, does it have a red cover or not Are the, is the big important question. Uh, below that, there's sort of a second tier of intelligence agencies. And as you allude, I have wanted to do the Asia book for Knights Black Agents for a good long time, but I have not, you know, really dove in and done super deep research. So this is sort of my intelligence consumer's guess. And I'm sure that if I, you know, went in, I would discover, oh my God, Singapore has an amazing SIGINT agency or something that I just don't know. But right now, the other sort of main players are India, which the Intelligence Bureau, their domestic security service, is the oldest intelligence bureau on the continent. It was founded, of course, by the hated British as the Indian Special Branch, and then the Indians took it over and made it their own special branch. And then the Foreign Intelligence Unit, the Research and Analysis Wing, is part of the IB in India. And it is also, it's a very, very strong regional player, but I don't know to what extent you got a lot of Indian agents in the Pacific as opposed to the Indian Ocean or in Southeast Asia. Right. They're pretty much focused on their rivalry with uh, Pakistan. Pakistan. Same with Pakistan as well. So you might as well talk about the ISI while we're at Yeah, the ISI is the Pakistani overarching. It's like uh, the CIA if the CIA were were more military uh, in structure. So it's sort and, of the... And running a parallel government within right. the country. Well, there are those who argue that they're not that far from that now, but right. yes. the ISI is the CIA plus the DIA. It's the military intelligence plus the CIA plus it maintains, as you say, this entire architecture of bases and supporting terrorists without, you know, the overt knowledge of the civilian government. And again, you know, draw your own parallels, but... The ISI is a, even though Pakistan is smaller and weaker than India, ISI is, of course, therefore much scrappier and more paranoid, and that makes it more dangerous. See North Korea versus South Korea. The North Korean Reconnaissance General Bureau, which is their foreign clandestine service, is, I mean, they punch way above their weight. They're everywhere. They're in North America. They're in South America. Because it's the only thing Kim is interested in. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And the South Korean CIA, the NIS, formerly the KCIA, Korean CIA, is somewhat hampered by sort of trying to be democratically accountable now after having literally murdered the previous president some time ago and having been complicit in any number of horrific clampdowns on civil society. The current democratic government of Korea, of South Korea, is not interested in giving them their head and telling them to go play, but also they face the North Koreans. They face the RGB, and of course, they also face the Chinese. So, the NIS really has to be, you know, it, it's one of those, they can make lots of mistakes, we can't make one type situations in South right. Korea. And the huge advantage of doing a North-South Korea vampire game is the enormous wealth of <laughs> spy movies that you can draw on from South Korea. And uh, I mean, that's the great gift, so much right? to go on with. Yeah. That. Again, it sort of loses a little of the globe trottingness of it, although plenty of South Korean spy movies take place all over the globe. But your scope is 
then very much down onto that, you know, 38th parallel. Right. But for the section of your game that happens in Korea, it's got to be that, right? It's got to be North versus South and Mm -hmm. defectors and uh, moles and all that. And sleeper agents and all the rest of it. And uh, there's so much, so much strong thematic material in Korean spy films, which we could do a whole segment on, but we're not. Uh, The other two players in that sort of B-list group would be Vietnam, which basically turns its main intelligence work over to its military intelligence department. So if you imagine the GRU as uh, sort of the senior player, which they have been plenty of times in Russian history, but in Vietnam, it's the Tong Cook II, the second general department of the Vietnamese military. And that's a very, very good unit. But again, they don't really have global ambitions. They're mostly focused at keeping China at arm's length more than they are about, you know, interfering in, you know, Indonesian civil society or whatever. Japan is the other one. Their intelligence units are, up until fairly recently, grotesquely underfunded and understaffed. The Japanese version of the CIA, I don't even think has a thousand people in it. And when you consider that our CIA has you know, probably 20,000 people in it. That seems right. Yeah. I, I suppose critics of the CIA would say that Japan's is awesomely underfunded. Yes. It's, it's terrifically underfunded. And again, if the CIA has the advantage of the Pacific ocean between it and everything, Japan, not so much. So most of Japan's intelligence product comes from the defense intelligence headquarters, which is it's sort of DIA. And as Japanese self-defense force has been sort of, staging up and getting uh, stronger and stronger, their intelligence force has also been moving up. But they don't really have, outside Japan home waters, Korea, Taiwan, they don't really have a, a super global presence. To the extent they have a global presence, it would be that little nugatory intelligence council. And then they have a pretty strong domestic uh, secret service a security service, the PSIA, which is like their FBI. And again, if you look at Japan's history of weird terrorists, communist agitation, crazy apocalyptic cults, you sort of get an idea of why their PSIA has to, you know, at the very least, you know, look like they're stepping up, even whether they are or not, I guess is a question for a, a theater analyst, which I'm not. I don't know anything of the Taiwanese National Security Bureau, except that it exists. And that's the way they like it, Ken. That is the way they like it. It's one of those groups that classifies who runs it type situation like the Israelis do. So they could be a B-list or they could be a C-list. Um, Taiwan has not super impressed me with their uh, security uh, status, but who knows? It could be that you know they've still got old moles left behind by Chang. And that'd be right. lovely if they and did. They may be, you know, the ones who are off the board because they're busy dealing with vampires. Right. right. Exactly. That's that's why they're not dealing with China as much as they should. They've got vampires to fight all over the the, the area. Um, Indonesia's uh, BIN and the Philippines NICA are both pretty good at sort of if foreigners are funding domestic terror or domestic rebellions, they're good at breaking that up. But again, I don't believe that they have a gigantic overseas presence. So that's basically where you sit in Asia. And then obviously Central Asia is all, you know, focused towards the Soviets to a large extent or towards the Chinese. But those are all one or another, you know, terrible third generation copy of the KGB in like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and and whatever else. Uh, The Iranians get up to some fun and activity, but not as much as they you know, could be again, because they're very busy uh, in the rest of the Middle East tangling with American Israel. Right. And so uh, if you're playing uh, CIA or MI6 characters, you're going to be a fish out of water as you uh, run away from uh, vampires. 
Uh, but some of the vampires you're running away from will also be different than uh, Dracula and his uh, Romanian pals, starting, of course, with the classic uh, Jiangxi, or hopping vampire. The uh, challenge with uh, this vampire, is, of course, is to erase the hilarious slapstick image of, of this particular vampire from Hong Kong movies and mm-hmm. make him scary again. Yeah, which has been done with some effect by later uh, Hong Kong and, and Chinese horror movies. But still, I feel like you're going to have to turn the hopping into a sort of a like a the girl from the ring uh, skittering, like a yes, frame drop. Leapy, leaping or something. Leaping. Somebody needs to fast zombie the, yeah, the Zhangxi. The, the Zhangxi. Um, and the Zhangxi, of course, there's a gigantic amount of lore and I'm assuming that if I dove into it, it would turn out there's a bunch of regional types of Jiangxi and Manchuria's got its own and Kwangtung's got its own. And, you know, every province has their own flavor in the same way that every Balkan country has their own vampire. It just beggars the imagination that a country that's, you know, as enormous, both in population and in different folkways and cultures as China only has one kind of vampire, but Jiangxi are definitely the one, the the headline vampire that everyone's going to want. And I've deliberately put off putting them into nice black agents just because I want to do this. You're right. When I do it, um, we do have a different kind of Chinese vampire, the golden vampire that's in uh, Knights black agents in the Dracula dossier book, uh, the Penangalon. I believe that I put into a uh, double tap. That is the Malaysian vampire and is generally the sort of vampire you get in Southeast Asia, you get a vampire that is somehow able to break apart into bits and often the head is what flies around. Sometimes the body moves around and does creepy things. That is very similar to the Makarong, which is a Vietnamese vampire that basically for some reason stuffs its toes in its nostrils and then floats to mess with you. I'm not sure how it bites you if its legs are in the way, but I assume it's something creepy and body horror-y, and it certainly would have to be when you depict it. Uh, the Aswang, which is the Philippine vampire, that is usually a beautiful woman that takes a horrific shape when you've uh, fallen for her charms. Sometimes the Philippine vampires have their heads separate, uh, which implies a melee connection. Uh, sometimes they're just regular. In either case, they drink through their tongues. Their tongues, like, hyperextend and drink your blood, which is cool. And then in terms of vampires that turn into beautiful ladies, the Japanese Gaki is, of course, a classic. And there's lots of great Japanese vampire uh, films as well to use. And then we talked about uh, the Buta and I believe the Vitala in Knights Black Agents already, which are the vampires of India. Buta basically just means ghost, but there's a sort of a devoury ghost. And then, of course, there's the old D&D Rakshasa, which shares the name and not a lot else with the Indian demon, uh, the Rakshasa. But the Rakshasa, of course, is another one of those things like the Jiangxi that it's got, you know, gigantic depths of lore. And the deeper you go, I'm sure the more cool vampire stuff you can find. But even the regular old D&D slash Kolchak Rakshasa that just changes shape like a doppelganger and can only be killed by a sacred crossbow, that's still pretty great. I mean... Yes, that, that's very useful in an yeah. espionage environment because about half of these are kind of weird gross ghosty type things that you you know you can't imagine them running a parallel intelligence network but then the other half clearly are capable of assuming a human shape and understanding society and having henchmen and all that uh, stuff that you need uh, in order to chase around your knight's black agents agents and once you've said agents twice in a row you have to end a segment. That's just one of the many rules we have on this podcast. So uh, let's see what's waiting on the other side of this exciting hand tool commercial. 
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. While you're still sure you're still you, help us out by joining such unquestionably authentic Patreon backers as... Chris Farrell. Josh Borlace. Ludovic Chavant. Mark Kevin Hall. And Michael Manival. The Freitag's Triangle in the background, the Rising Arc, the beautiful series of multiple act structures, all hallmarks of finding ourselves enmeshed in the narrative hut. And in the narrative hut, beloved Patreon backer Nikolai asks, what does the avalanche of multiverse stuff, Rick and Morty, Into the Spider-Verse, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Doctor Strange, say about the current zeitgeist? Robin, do we believe in the zeitgeist? So so I'm going to start by giving a cool answer Mm -hmm. that I think is quite brilliant, but also completely wrong. All right. (laughs) And then we can go on the best what we kind think of the answer. real answer is. Right. So the, the zeitgeisty answer, the idea that things arise in pop culture because they reflect uh, something deeper in the culture at large, we have to look around to multiple realities, competing realities, competing visions of the same character coming into clash with one another. And of course, this is absolutely arising because our fragmented information scape has siloed us all into different realities that we're seeing polarization everywhere. There's a democracy where people can polarize. People are choosing their own realities. When realities clash, great violence and disturbance occurs. And uh, so clearly this is a comment on the fact that people are through the modern information age technology are reverting to an atavistic state where people uh, choose what they want to believe and then clash with one another. And there's no single timeline anymore. There's no reality anymore. There's just competing alternate realities, and we're all existing in different alternate realities to one another. And uh, so that is my brilliant, but of course, wrong thesis. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> the real answer is that we are in the late Rococo stage of nerd <laughs> culture, right. where nerd culture is not only mainstream culture, but it's kind of old hat mainstream culture. Yeah. Right? We've had Star Wars and Star Wars is 77, the big shift there, and even the Marvel stories are now getting kind of old, and this is, people are used to all, all of this stuff, and they're as far along in their fandom as comics readers were in 1961, when the first multiverse story uh, happened in the world of, of comics, and then became a staple of it. Right, that was Gardner Fox's classic Flash of Two Worlds, which said, remember the Justice Society that we've been putting in reprints in the back of Justice League for oh so long? Guess what? They still exist. They're on a different Earth. They're on Earth 2. And our buddy Flash 
got his inspiration from reading comic books about the Earth 2 Flash, which means the comic books are the means of transit between the worlds. And that became a giant thing in the DC universe, spawned a number of crossover stories between the JLA and the JSA, culminating, if you will, in Crisis on Infinite Earths, a giant mega story in 1986 that attempted to reify their multiverse. Because the multiverse got too complicated, yeah, too, too complicated, too Baroque, and to be brought back into heel. And then everything was solved forever in the continuity of DC Comics. Right. It never changed again. Marvel yeah. was standing over there saying, oh, look at you. We just have a rich, believable ecology in our universe. We don't need a multiverse yeah. until they we're never going to split off to a completely different continuity line, which we're then later going to want to rationalize into the main one. We're not going to fall for that. That that would never happen to Marvel. And then they realized people love multiverses and they sold. Uh, so there was, for example, the Spider-Verse comic book, which spawned into the Spider-Verse, the cartoon, which definitely accelerated if it did not spawn Spider-Man No Way Home. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness may have been a response to the fact that Spider-Verse and No Way Home made a billion trillion dollars. And someone said, well, let's let's maybe do that. Of course, oh, but uh, I think they're already in development, right? Yeah, Multiverse of Madness was already in development when No Way Home was being done, but not at the time of the Spider-Verse came out, I don't think. But anyway, the multiverse is, as you say, the sort of late stage of nerd evolution. It's happened in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There's a crossover called Turtles Forever. Power Rangers did it for Power Rangers Legendary Battle in 2014. And of course, uh, the DC did it again in their TV incarnation with the Crisis on Infinite Earths multi-series spectacular, which would be part of Nikolai's example if Nikolai were watching the Arrowverse. Right. And that was already well foreshadowed in The Flash, where he'd already met the previous Flash. Yeah, they set that up because The Flash has always been about the Flash of Two Worlds in the comics, or always, always since 1961. I uh, was looking for the first example of it on TV and film, and I think it's The Three Doctors, the first big crossover in Doctor Who history. I'm not sure whether or not that's a true multiverse because it's time travel. So it's the spirit of multiverse stories, though, yeah. because it's all the same continuity, but he's meeting previous incarnations of himself. And that's what you want, right? right you yeah. want the different versions. You of want the, the spider's to- man to shake hands and hug and, and, and point at each and other. Be, exactly. Yeah. Ideally. Um, the Last Action Hero, another great multiversal film that does not get enough love. And of course, Jet Li's The One, where Jet Li, this is the sort of martial arts version of Everything Everywhere, in which instead of come to a beautiful realization about your family, you just have to kick your alternate selves in the head really hard. But The One is another terrific multiverser. Right. Well, who else can fight Jet Li but Jet Li? Right. And that's sort of Highlander, but with a multiverse is basically the the approach on the one. And it's, again, it's great, good fun. I don't know that it's a mega classic, but it, it was delightful back in 2001. And to bring it back around a little bit to the zeitgeist sense of it, there is a bit of wishful thinking that happens, if only because the writers are writing things. So our Jet Li, our hero Jet Li, I believe turns out to come from the world where Gore won in 2000 and he has to and the evil Jet Li winds up coming from the world where Bush won and so there's a little bit of you know projection I don't know if that's zeitgeist doing it or sad liberal writers doing it although the difference between zeitgeist and sad liberal writers I guess is a different podcast or at least a different segment of this one right and the interesting question to me is that that we're deep 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 into the multiverse mm-hmm. part of comics asked the question is there going to be a stage past this right is are we going to have the equivalent of the 
Arrowverse Crisis on Infinite Earths is clearly an attempt to homage the comics because its whole thing is to, you know, excite the nerd. But are you going to have a thing where they're going to try and collapse timelines back into each other? Or even more broadly, are we going to reach, you know, peak absorption of all of these uh, properties where, you know, when I was a kid, you were lucky to get one movie like this every year or two years and now it's constant fare everywhere. If you're a giant DC fan, there aren't enough hours in the day mm-hmm. to watch all the DC shows. And is there going to be a generation that's going to come around and react to all of this as, well, can we see something else, right? <laughs> are, are we going to hit the point of it? Because the blockbuster era, you know, you can divide that probably into two or three sub eras. But, you know, what's what's going to follow this? Are we just going to keep having these increasingly self-referential things interact with each other? And uh, is it all going to be prequels and sidequels? Or is there going to be another generation that's going to reject all of this stuff in favor of uh, something simpler or perhaps even not all that nerdy? I mean, do we do we look at a world in which, you know, Star Wars famously went fallow for like 20 years? There was basically no Star Wars and everyone was sort of said, well, you know, I guess, or 10 years, I guess, whenever it was, there was a period where there was no Star Wars and everyone sort of accepted that and moved on. Are we at a place where Disney can afford to let Marvel go fallow or do they have to keep trying to reinvent that wheel? And have to have a new MCU show running uh, either an MCU or a Star Wars or both to justify their increasingly lucrative Disney plus business model. But, uh, you know, maybe the next big giant hit on Disney plus is just going to be a show about regular teenagers doing regular teenager thing. <laughs> right. Having some kind of fun adventure in a, a sunnily lit major American city. They'll find a, a pop starlet to, to play in it. Yeah. If, if only they could license Bubblegum Shoe. If only. If only. Yeah, the other question is that right now the Marvel Universe, all of the sort of bits of the multiverse are still like sidekicks to the real, quote-unquote, Marvel timeline. I think the real test will be, are they able to admit that some of our movies are like the ultimate Marvel and some of our movies are like regular Marvel and some of our movies take place in some weird cartoon Howard the Duck Marvel and we don't have to have them cross over. We're able to do what the comics have done, which is to sell sort of different, you know, uh, they step on your your Batman or your Spider-Man different amounts so you can follow them on different tracks and to an extent, they have that already with the cartoons, right? The the cartoon Batman, the cartoon Justice League, the, the cartoon Brave and the Bold, those have nothing to do with the Zack Snyder universe. They barely have anything to do with the one-off cartoon movies that come out of DC. So is there going to be a proper multiverse, or is it just going to be like the Mirror Universe in Star Trek, where it just shows up to let you know, Yep, uh, I've shown up to shake your hand and say, you, Tom Holland, are a real Spider-Man, even though I, Tobey Maguire, am the actual real Spider-Man. Well, they did do a weird thing with Venom, where it seemed like they brought him into the mainstream MCU only mm-hmm. to have a little tag that kicked him back out again. Yeah. And that's to do with, the, you know, the Sony Marvel Licensing, ownership right, thing. Yeah. And I guess the real test of that is, what are they going to do when they finally introduce the X-Men into the MCU? Are they going to literally be the same characters ported over from their other universe? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to be rebooted versions of those characters, which they need to do anyway, because the mm-hmm. original actors have all aged out of those roles. And they and they have rebooted them once, right? We yes. rebooted them with the younger actors for the time travel X-Men's. 
And then the question is, we got Charles Xavier show up in the multiverse movie, but it was Patrick Stewart, Charles Xavier, not what's his name? Tom Xavier, James McAvoy, James McAvoy, Charles Xavier. So, you know, many questions remain. And yeah, I I guess the bringing the old Fox X-Men into X-Men continuity is the big well, there won't they? And I suspect it's coming down to how much money Hugh Jackman wants. <laughs> right. Well, I think he might be done with the role. We'll see what happens. Right. But yes, and uh, there was part of me that thought that, uh, you know, he might show up and there'd be a little snicked at the end of the whole Thanos thing and mm-hmm. they would do that then. But uh, no, of course, yep. you got to wait on that. Anyway, yep. we're getting Baroque about something Rococo. Mm-hmm. So it's time for us to uh, flee into something that has nothing to do with alternate timeline. Oh, wait. No, it does. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated use him to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, estimable Patreon backer John Scheib asks, what dark timeline did Ken prevent by keeping Louis XIV up late night drinking the night before the young man history knows as Prince Eugene of Savoy would come before the throne to ask for a position in the French army. So this is one of the uh, great generals of European military history. Absolutely. He fought against the French in our timeline. And I guess this is the point where you tell us a bit more about our timeline before you tell us about that other one. Yeah. Eugene of Savoy is born in 1663. He's the youngest son of the Prince of Savoy and his wife, Olympia Mancini, who is one of the nieces of Cardinal Mazarin. Olympia thinks maybe she gets to be Louis XIV's royal mistress, but he goes a different way with it. You know, he he liked her energy. He liked her audition tape, but finally he's going to go somewhere else. So she got into the affair of poisons to attempt to win his love back through black magic and Satanism. Right. And for for more on the affair of poisons, you can go all the way back to episode 20 of Ken and Robin. Mm -hmm. So once she's uh, tarnished her good name thusly, Louis XIV, not really into helping her kids. So Eugene, a little Satanism will, will blot yep. your uh, kid's resume. Also, she fled to Brussels, which is just, you know, that, that's like an admission of yeah. guilt in so many ways. Brussels is even worse than Satanism. Right. It's in the mix. So Eugene shows up. He is unprepossessing to say the least. There are rumors that he's gay, which is not great at the time. He'd been training for the cloth. He has no military background whatsoever. So Louis says, The petition was humble. The petitioner, not at all. Get out. 
And so Eugene, in a wonderful, you know, you laughed at me at the Academy moment, writes to his cousin and says, well, Louis XIV has uh, sent me away. I will not enter France except bearing a sword. And it's like, whoa. So he uh, goes to Austria. His brother has already commanded a, re- a regiment. Austria is being invaded by the Turks at this time in 1683. Eugene takes over his regiment after fighting nobly in the siege of Vienna, takes the regiment over in 1683 as a colonel, and then rapidly rises in rank. And some of this is due to the fact that his uncle, I believe, is the king of Savoy. So it's always good to have a king's relatives looking good. But some of it is just sheer talent. Uh, he becomes a major general in 1685, becomes a lieutenant general in 1687. By 1690, he has basically saved the imperial position in Italy against the French during the Nine Years' War. Full field marshal in 1693 at the age of 30. So, some so of this... So, what point are the French going whoops? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And I think in 1690, they began to start whoopsing pretty heavily. Uh, 1693, he's really a big deal. He takes over the uh, war against the Turks... And in 1697, destroys the Turkish army, sending the Sultan fleeing into Transylvania at the Battle of Zenta in Serbia. And that is such a crippling victory that it destroys the Turkish position in uh, Europe basically forever. They have to pull all the way back to the Danube strategically. It's just not good. Then... The War of Spanish Succession breaks out in 1701, in which the King of France wishes to place his son in line for the throne of Spain. No one wants that to happen, except the Spanish for reasons. And then, as he's serving against the the French in that war, he keeps rising. He becomes the head of the Imperial War Council in 1703, becomes best friends with um, the uh, Duke of Marlborough, the British commander, John Churchill, and then helps win Blenheim in partnership with Marlborough in 1704, breaking the French invasion of Austria into a million pieces. Uh, he then conquers Lombardy for Austria, which is Milan and the area around that. He wins two more big battles, Udenard and Malplakwat. Then the hated British, of course, fire Marlborough just for being a humongous grafting embezzler. Like that was a problem. <laughs> oh, was that all? Uh, is that all? Oh, and shucks. then they, they make a separate piece and uh, weasel out on the Austrians, leaving them to fight the French basically alone. Eugene is so good that he basically gets a status quo anti-peace out of the Peace of Utrecht, which means that they get to keep Northern Italy, which they w- didn't have before. So that's how good he was. Then he goes back. The Turks are uh, making noises. They've forgotten how badly they got whipped last time. He beats them again at Petro Ferardin, and literally... That's the boundary of Austria-Hungary until the end of World War I is the boundary that Eugene sets up after Petro Veradin. As comes to us all, time does come to the young prince. He ably guides Austria through a sort of European Cold War in the 1720s, but eventually Spain and France team up again in the War of Polish Succession. He does not win that war. He is a shell of his former self, but there's enough of him left to train Frederick the Great, and then he dies in 1736 after his failure in Polish succession. And that's uh, the life of Eugene of Savoy in our timeline. So his contributions, if we can list them, are complete destruction of the Ottoman presence in Europe, the creation of Austria-Hungary, given that he ties Hungary to Austria by conquering it from the Turks, beats the French soundly at Blenheim, thus preventing Austria from being invaded and destroyed and keeping France out of Germany more largely, breaks the Turks again, 
and trains Frederick the Great. That's his resume, right. Robin. That's a pretty good resume. And Frederick the Great says, sure, he'd lost a step, but he was still everything I am as a commander I owe to Eugene of Savoy. And Frederick the Great, one assumes, not a particularly generous man, but uh, he knew a good general when he saw one. He was also the guy that said George Washington is the uh, greatest commander under arms after Princeton, which a lot of people didn't see then. So, so. is his career equally illustrious? If you mess with the timeline and uh, get him a, a command in France. I feel like it probably is. It may not be quite as illustrious because Austria had one good general besides Eugene and the French had two or three good generals besides Eugene. So he's not quite the crucial element in the military history of France that he is in Austria. The other thing is France does not face an existential foe the way that the Austrians do the Turks. So by saving Austria from the Turks twice, Eugene does more for Austria than he could have done for France. But that means that given another great military genius, Louis XIV could have done much better in the wars that he basically tied against the British and Austrians. And the war that we're all thinking of, of course, the war of Spanish succession. What if Eugene is on the other side at Blenheim? Well, for one thing, he doesn't get uh, spooked by Marlborough's English cavalry at all because personal courage and disciplined uh, soldiery are his hallmarks. Marlborough doesn't have the imperial support that he would because as with every other British imperial action, uh, the British and the imperial troops don't trust each other. The same thing happens in um, uh, Waterloo, for example, when the Duke of Orange and the German troops basically sort of run away rather than stay and fight the uh, Napoleon. And uh, it's only the Prussians coming in at the last minute to save the day. And again, the Prussians don't coordinate with Napoleon, so or with Wellington, rather. So he doesn't know where they are. The Blenheim campaign is almost unique in English continental operations for not involving their own allies, making more trouble for them than they're worth. And that's down to Eugene and Marlborough's personal connection as military geniuses who, who like each other a great deal. And so with Eugene at Blenheim, the French win. And I, I think that that's pretty uncontroversial. And that means the French basically are able to march and sack Vienna. And remember, this is a Vienna where the Turks are still clawing at the back end of it. So 1704, uh, if the French are invading, the Turks not having been destroyed at Zenta are also invading and maybe Austria goes away. And even if it doesn't, it becomes very much an appanage of the French crown. And that means France, Spain, the Holy Roman empire and Austria are all basically Louis the 14th to do with as he will. And that creates a great European empire uh, of the sort that British policy has opposed forever. And it does it with someone who's got a lot more staying power than Napoleon did. Maybe not as many smarts, but he's got Villars, he's got Eugene, he's got plenty of really good marshals. Right. And and he doesn't want to take over and run the show himself. He's part of the, he's an aristocrat. Yeah, so he absolutely. doesn't want to yeah. challenge the hierarchy. So he's less of a, a, a loose cannon, as it were, than Napoleon. Precisely. And he um, he's very much tied into the social structure. I mean, even when his, uh, his uh, uncle, the, the Amadeus of Savoy, betrays him, in Italy in the 1690s, in the Nine Years' War, he still, like, sends him letters. He says, I still respect you as the head of the family, but I am never going to trust you again to have my back against the French. But again, in this uh, universe, Prince Amadeus of Savoy is like 
a million times happy to see Eugene show up and invade Northern Italy for France, because he's going to wind up being the viceroy that runs Milan and runs maybe even, maybe not Naples, but certainly runs Florence, runs maybe even Venice. Big dreams. But it's, you know, Eugene was a master of maneuver. He was a master of, you know, that sort of concentration at the point, all that stuff that he taught Frederick. That's, that's where he got it. Uh, interestingly, where he loses is usually where the, there's too many rivers and too many forts. And so he can't do a big sweeping, you know, end around. That's why he's not really able to do much more than conquer the rest of Belgium from the French in, um, uh, the War of the Spanish Succession. It's part of why the Polish Succession doesn't go well. And it's why the Siege of Toulon doesn't work is because he's basically fighting his way down the French coast seizing their uh their forts as he goes but he is very much at home in in wars where it's about you know which pass did you seize and did you get your men over it and he's amazing in the wide open frontier warfare in uh hungary against the turks and this raises a question robin let us say that you have a guy eugene of savoy maybe you don't quite trust him yet his mom is still a political problem child. You don't have a Turkish front to send him to, although maybe you've sent him to the war in Catalonia. France briefly fought uh, wars against Algiers and a couple of other wars in the East in the 1680s. So maybe he's you know been seasoned up there, but you're still not a million percent sure you want him holding the line in Italy against Savoy. So what do you do with this young general and his unit of dragoons? Why you send them to America because Iberville, your commander in America, has been screaming, give me one regiment and I will conquer America for you. And uh, Lewis says, well, it turns out I have a spare regiment. I'm doing better. Austria, of course, is markedly worse off. So I don't need quite as many men to hold down Austria. I'll send one regiment to America under the command of Prince Eugene of Savoy. Eugene is not going to do this. Let's hang back and let the Iroquois do all the fighting stuff. He's going to invade New York which again, the French did. They just did it with a very few men and mostly Iroquois. If you add to that Eugene and his cavalry and Eugene's, you know, capacity for forced marches, his insane personal courage, which would absolutely have inspired the Iroquois to think of him as a great, great commander and follow him in ways that they maybe didn't the other Frenchmen. His tactical sense, his ability to outmaneuver. Again, he's fighting a confused English militia. The militias are still uh, coming up after the uh, Andros governorship. The colonies are, uh, in many cases, internally riven. Obviously, you've got the Salem witch trials going on in Massachusetts Bay. You've got a, a big political battle between the theocracy and the, and the more bourgeois powers. Into this mix comes the greatest tactical and strategic commander of the age at the head of the only professional cavalry in the hemisphere. I feel like at the very least, the end of the nine years war ends with New York and New England and upper Canada, Robin under the flag of the French. And then in the war of Spanish succession, sure he wins Blenheim, but also the guys he's left behind, the, the guys he's trained go ahead and conquer maybe Pennsylvania. And suddenly Spain takes everything up to the Potomac back because, of course, Spain never abandoned that claim. And there you go. No America, no Canada, Robin. What better reason to drink all night with Louis Fourteenth? I ask you. <laughs> so how long in this timeline does the dominant French empire remain dominant? Does it 
make it all the way to the French Revolution? Does the French Revolution even happen? What does our present day look like? I feel like a lot of that comes down to, to what extent do the French, are the French able to spark Catholic rebellions in Scotland and Ireland? If Britain is able to be undistracted at home, it can, you know, rebuild its navy and begin picking away at the French. And probably by the 1770s, you will see the French position have the same sort of ossified qualities that the British position did, both in North America and in Europe. And so that might be the big rematch that everyone's, you know, eager to see. And again, the Industrial Revolution still happens starting in England. The factories in England begin churning out money. The English banking system doesn't necessarily go away, although France, for example, gets to control the slave trade and the English don't. So the English don't have a a giant source of profit. France has all the sugar islands. The English don't, you know, so there's less capital for the Industrial Revolution, but still you know, it's fundamentally an internally powered development. So I feel like, you know, you're, you're looking at a big rematch in the 1780s, 1790s around the time of the revolution, but I don't think the French revolution necessarily happens, not least because the French government doesn't do anything, any of the half measures that allowed it to happen that they did in our timeline. They're, they're more absolutist. Uh, there was no, for example, Spanish revolution and Spain was far more bankrupt and miserable than France was. It's just the bureaucratic and aristocratic cultures were different. I feel like you have that same sort of absolutism coming out of a successful conquering Louis the Fourteenth. Well, I think that's a pretty good look at that uh, very different timeline. And uh, with that accomplished, we can pronounce this entire podcast accomplished. But we'll be back uh, next week with a very special episode. We, we have a double header celebration this year. We already did the 500th episode, and we're going to do something uh, a little different and off track to celebrate the actual 10 years since our first episode dropped. So uh, join us for that next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Don't branch off into a Cardusless timeline join such beloved backers as monster talk neil dalton phil bailey nate Merritt, and urs blumentritt wear this show or drink it from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin don our rhino rific latest design unicorn with a better armor class on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs>